Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. I got a little uh, DraftKings slip that they gave me. So I'll, I'll put together a little uh, daily fantasy, you know, kind of the halfway version of gambling. Mm, um, yeah. Little lineup there. So I'll, I'll have fun with that. But actually, you know what? My dad did me a solid. He he got me on his, uh, his the company that he works for, the Punnett Squares. He got me a square. So Oh, nice. I, and I think it was pretty good. It was like... You got like a three? Like a zero and Ooh. a seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit, dude. Yeah. That's that's killer. That's uh, for a square you're not paying for. Especially. Exactly. That's killer. Yeah. yeah. I, I won a square once that my dad paid for and he kept the money. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, I paid. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's in your name, you know, but I pay for everything you have. I was like, well, not really, but. <laughs> the, bait, okay. the bait and switch. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like nine. I wanted to save up for like a new PlayStation game. And I was like, oh, I could just buy a whole Xbox. And he's like, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> that is funny. Like, like nine, it, it is like, oh, I'll just sign my kid up. It'll be, he'll be, fu- he'll be happy to be involved. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, exactly. And yeah. It's just like, fuck, wait. <laughs> One of my squares didn't win, but his wait, did. I, wait, I think, wait, uh, hold the I phone. Think I'll collect yeah. on that. I think that was the uh, the Bears Colts Super wow. Bowl that opened with the Devin Hester kickoff return touchdown, Amazing. Uh, which went downhill from there for the Chicago Bears. But we are not talking about American style foosball on this week's podcast. We're we're going to a land where uh, ba- where the baseball flows like wine, <laughs> Japan. <laughs> Uh, Takeshi Kitano, of course, is the topic of this week's episode. It is part two of our three-part series on the Japanese comedian-turned-auteur. This is, of course, Extended Clip. It is, of course, episode 277. I am, I'm not going to say of course, I am by surprise, Eddie Averill. (laughs) I'm surprisingly Malcolm Baum. I'm just regular old JT White. <laughs> I guess it would be a surprise if I used a different name. Like if I went initialisms. Like if I was like, uh, and by surprise, I'm one of your hosts, E.E. Averill. <laughs> kind of hard. Have you ever considered yeah, e. that? E.E. Averill's going sick, by, yeah. Going by E.E.? Double E? That's I think E.E. Cummings has kind of the only reason that works. People have an association with that because E.E. sucks. Like saying that. E.E. Yeah, what's up, man? My name's E.E. It's monkeyish. You know, you're sounding like a little E.E. Ooh-ah-ah, you know? My name's E.E. Yeah, my name's E.E. No, I, I didn't ask what your favorite Edward Yang movie was. <laughs> no, I said it's E.E. No, I know. That's mine, too. But what's your name? A little who's on first with the E.E. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they love baseball over there. Not Japan. That's Edward yeah. Yang's Taiwan. But he loves baseball, too. It's in Taipei Story. You can't, you can't get me on these things. I know everything. <laughs> You, you look at that baseball scene in Taipei Story, you tell me they don't love baseball over there. 
that's i mean this is why film history is important for situations like these so you could learn about where they play baseball so <laughs> yeah. you can say quote unquote over there without being racist or just get a in conversational <laughs> faux pas it's like no actually in greece they play a lot of cricket you don't know that you know it's like there's this movie about it that's from the 50s you probably haven't seen it but i did because i care you know i'm not racist yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> i'm culturally entrenched you know so last time uh, on the podcast, we were talking about Takeshi Kitano's early career. We talked about the the TV roots and the first couple of films. We focused on Sonatine, and I left off with this quote that I'm going to repeat here because that episode was, of course, on the Patreon, and you have to pay $5 a month to get the first and third parts of this miniseries. That's that's a little thing they, they don't tell you until you <laughs> go click play, you know? <laughs> The fine print. That's in the fine print of our podcast. Yeah. That's uh, it's gonna be in the fine print. You're gonna five dollars is a steal, though. That's so little money. Oh no, I mean, look, we're For not so much knowledge. It's true. It's true. I'm not even trying to promise. You know, yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the the title Sonatine comes from the musical term Sonatina. Catano uh, said that when learning the piano, when the learner gets to sonatinas, they have to decide where they want to go, whether it is to classical, jazz, or popular music, marking the point of crucial decision making. Now, Kitano, as an artist after Sonatine, was in this very spot where he had mastered or at least become very highly competent at broad comedy, at, you know, very heartfelt melodrama with A Scene at the Sea, and with uh, crime films, highly stylized art house style crime films, recalling Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, with stuff like Violent Cop, Boiling Point, and Sonatine. So where does he go after that but to Getting Any? Getting Any, his 1994 comedy where he actually credits himself director Beat Takeshi. He does not go by his birth name here. He goes by his comedic stage name. And maybe it's something of a statement. There's a lot of people that have read into uh, stuff he said about this movie where it's like maybe it was intentionally, quote unquote, bad to like ruin his career or whatever. <laughs> and I don't buy that at all because I think it's one of the funniest movies to ever exist. It's not a great movie. The narrative does not hold together whatsoever. It's simply a series of gags with a lot of very lazy parody throughout as well uh but like it is just so insane when it hits and he's really putting his full effort of filmmaking into this style of absurd humor uh where it's like all that he learned and was able to accomplish as a director and convey these emotions in Sonatine and a scene at the sea and violent cop. He's just funneling that all into crude sex humor, basically forgetting any, the film starts with the protagonist watching a movie on TV, maybe on the spice channel or something where a couple is having sex in a car in a very stylized manner, uh, you know, in front of a Tokyo skyline. And he just like has his, his light bulb moment because we presume this is a uh, a shut-in version character and he's like oh i'm gonna get a car so that i can have sex so he goes to the dealership and the dealer says what kind of car do you want and he says one to have sex in uh, which is one of the great exchanges ever and it's not takeshi playing this character but the comedian he has in the lead role is great at delivering the deadpan stuff and uh the, the first scene of him driving a car he sees a woman and he just gets like really horny and loses control of the wheel and just runs her over <laughs> 
<laughs> it is just like a great static shot of the car driving away with the body splattered right in front of it. And it's like his ability to showcase like violence and stuff like that to absurd levels of like hyper violence is used for the greater good of comedy and something like getting anywhere. I mean, there's also a fantasy scene where he's thinking about flying an airplane. And I guess since this character has never been on an airplane, his vision of going on a plane means just like everyone gets laid in the air. Just like <laughs> the hostesses <laughs> are sucking everyone off. <laughs> and then it turns into like monster movie parody and like all this crazy shit. As I said, it barely holds together, but the funny parts are in insanely funny yeah the, what, what uh, you're describing there especially this it sounds it sounds good I, f- I feel like i'd enjoy that movie uh that the scene of like the uh, the woman getting run over that he's attracted to it kind of just you know makes me think about like the violence and sonatine or whatever like he you know he does like you know he obviously has a penchant for violence but in that movie at least like you get the aftermaths and like it kind of adds like a weight to what happened you know it's a little bit more serious where although i feel like tonally like if you just shift a couple things, like you know, obviously you know, make it more comedic. That same technique could also be comedic in a sense too. You know what I mean? Just in like yeah. a dark humor sense. So I would definitely recommend getting any to anyone out there. It used to be on YouTube, but is no longer because, and it's like you give and take there because it got taken down because it got restored and finally released in a proper Blu-ray. So there is like now an actually nice HD copy of it and you don't feel like a weirdo showing your friend something that has porn spliced into it. It's like, no, he's Mm -hmm. shooting a funny sex scene. Just wait. And you know, I don't like funny sex scenes. True. He does them so well. It's like, it's ridiculous how good he does them in this movie or the funny attempts to have sex at least. Uh, So getting any is a very high wreck for me. It is in like 1994. It's not only my birth year. It is one of the great like years for cinema of the last probably 40 or so, I would say. And that is kind of like right up there, like with Pulp Fiction and all that. The, the classics that came out in that year. Um, moving on through the 90s, though, because that one was not exactly a success. Nobody uh, other than us weirdos thinks that that one's great. Uh, he does uh, Kids Return and Brother and Kikujiro, which are all pretty well acclaimed brother being his one Hollywood movie but in the middle of those is Hana B and we did an episode about his most classic and notorious film Fireworks or Hana B a few years ago so what I'm gonna do here is rerun that segment because it used to be behind the paywall too uh, way back in the day on the first paywall so a lot of people don't even know how to access those episodes it's easy they're back there it's just like I get it. Uh, you don't want to scroll for 20 minutes looking for them because we've done so many episodes now. So we're going we're gonna to cut to a little time machine segment of our Hanabi review here. We'll be right back.
they, I was I was actually telling my parents I was on the phone with my parents today telling them to watch The Shield. My dad, my dad thinks it's like uh, he every time I tell him he thinks it's like a, a show from the seventies or something. I'm like, <laughs> you should remember this, but. And like he calls me an old man for watching Frasier and the Shield. <laughs> oh, it's the one where they fucking go. Uh, they they like yeah. have the the dinner party at the the beach house, and then they have to like disguise a dead seal or something yeah, like that. Yeah, very very strange. That's like, a that's a weird episode for sure. Because I think <laughs> Frasier is acting like strangely horny in that episode. It's one of his weird horny episodes. He's he's clout chasing because she's like a she's like a producer because he's still he's still without a job. So oh, like, this is Frasier's unemployment yeah. season. I forgot. I yeah. love that there's a season of Frasier where he's unemployed. He just doesn't do shit. <laughs> it's like it's basically the same show. Except no. Well, now he's no, a podcaster. Yeah, exactly. Um, we took all that back route without finding a segue back to our topic, and that's fine. Sometimes you just gotta jump on out of there and get back to the topic. Sometimes you gotta fill in the I mean, minutes. I think there's a there's a cop killing his wife kind of a, a thread there. Oh yeah. I mean you, when you when you tease out all of the threads of the violent cop and uh, you know, reality and fiction interspersing, I guess you will find a couple of similar threads as in our topic today, the 1997 film by Takeshi Kitano, uh, Hanabi, or Fireworks. Malcolm, you picked this one out. Why? And thank you in advance. I don't. We haven't done a Takeshi Kitano movie on we the podcast. I think that's the first time we've ever said his name on, on either I remember episode. you plugging Getting Any uh, oh, okay, a good no, amount, no. but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, maybe maybe we've we never said his full name. You know what I mean? Wow. Maybe we've yeah. I was calling him Beat Takeshi. Yeah, Beat Takeshi because we're so familiar. Yeah. But I mean, someone I like. I've watched a few movies of. I haven't really delved into the filmography. But I was thinking like, this is a popular guy. People watch his movies. I like him too. Like I like him. Oh, yeah. a Considerable amount. You know, great charisma as an actor and one of the great you know uh, actor directors of our time. One of the last great probably actor mm. directors out there. And uh, so I thought it's like we got to give him his due, and I've and this is one of his big movies that I'd never seen before, and you know I just used the the old Patreon as an opportunity to dig into it. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of his uh, most overall acclaimed film as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like his biggest thing as a screen presence. Obviously, his his TV work is what like rose him to stardom, and uh, even throughout his filmmaking career, still like a huge impact in that front. But. Uh, in terms of his reception from our end of things, you know, you know, look, we like watching goofy TV shows too, but we're, we're a film podcast. And uh, th- this was really the one that apparently in Japan even solidified him as like a super respectable, like artistic director, despite the fact that he had, I think, four films before this one. Uh, Takeshi in an interview like attributed this to being taken seriously as a filmmaker and not just like a comedian who likes to also make films. And with good reason. It is a real deal fucking classic movie. Yeah, and like, you know, I, I've been trying to go through stuff kind of, you know, in somewhat of an order. And like, yeah, of course this has a lot of similarities to like Violent Cop or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But obviously, yeah, there, this is kind of a step in the more subdued kind of direction, really kind of leaning into like a melancholic tone and... Yeah, I, I I could see why why uh, you know this solidified him as like an artist, but I think what makes him great is kind of how he you know meshes kind of like the genre filmmaking with kind of like more uh, artistic flair. You know what people consider to be a more like quote unquote intelligent filmmaking, but mm. what's really intelligent about him is how he 
considers both, you know, at the same time. Yeah, this was my uh, first uh, foray into his filmmaking, and I went in, like, pretty damn blind. I always enjoy uh, when uh, one of you boys has a pick, and I'm just like, I don't know what this is, really. And I get to go in blind and figure out from there. And I, uh, I don't know, just the mix of, like, a very calm, melancholy, peaceful tone with just, like, bursts of extreme violence was... uh, Oh no! What I needed, <laughs> yeah, and I like how that that kind of slow burn thriller uh, element kind of takes hold uh, for the last thirty minutes because I would say for the first hour plus it is this thing where you're kind of uh, oscillating between this slow art house drama, really melancholic tone, and these bursts of very excessive and stylized violence where that slowness becomes more of, as I said, slow burn suspense the second half, Uh, whereas the first half, it's like really you're kind of just getting on the wavelength of Katano's character and like his deadpan uh, reactions to everything and kind of the way that uh, as a filmmaker, he builds this world uh, according to his own deadpan performance. Like everyone is a beat slow, you know, and the cutting represents that and the staging is so sparse, but also always like obfuscating stuff uh, from the foreground, never getting that, you know, never getting quite as perfectly clean as you would think he would. He, It's just like, I don't know, it, it's a great sense of mise-en-scene that he builds out from the beginning that he uses for just pure suspense for the last act of it. No, yeah, it is. it is kind of built around kind of his deadpan tone and kind of like uh you know he's great at like kind of not responding to people's questions katana like that's one of uh his great you know acting tools that he uses here including like a lot of uh you know good face twitching and uh, yeah yeah i like i feel like that that tone is you know is so important to you know to the movie you know to the point where it kind of goes out of its way to establish that and then you kind of get like this thriller element kind of pumped up into it but like i i just love the way it kind of uh kind of cross cuts between you know uh nishi you know katano's storyline and then his partner you know who's doing kind of like this art therapy thing Mm -hmm. and it's like uh you know his partner it's really there's really no driving plot with his partner you really just kind of see him kind of go through field look at flowers and then use those for for inspiration and uh yeah, I don't. I think these scenes are, you know, directed, you know, very well. Like I love uh, how he like incorporates like the drawings themselves, you know, into like the sequence of events. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting choice to really spend this much time with like you know this is you know his former uh, you know detective partner who you know is now handicapped. But I feel like it it just shows how much tone is important to this movie. Yeah, I like that it oscillates between those two stories because I feel like it offers like, I don't know, sort of two different like perspectives or ways on like, I guess, wrestling with like a violent past. And I, I don't know, there's just something uh, the that's just so peaceful and nice about seeing the, the very pleasant artwork. But I don't know, it's uh, really melancholy mm-hmm. well the artwork is like yeah. taking these peaceful things and making them totally demented too yeah. like it'll yeah. show a flower that he's very inspired by and then that flower will appear dead in his painting and like the 
like the flower is the hanging head of a disappointed woman, you know, and it's just like this crazy, depressing, abstract paintings that he does. And all the paintings are done by Takeshi Kitano also, which is uh, nice to point out. You know, he really has his fingers in all the pies in this movie. He also edited the film oh. as well as writing and directing it. Um, and we should say just like what generally happens in the movie. Um, so as we said, Takeshi Kitano, you know, he plays a cop. He's on a stakeout with his partner and a couple other cops. They're like, hey, man, we're right by the hospital where your sick wife is, who you always ignore. Why don't you just like say hi to her for once? Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, even, he sees some kids playing baseball on the street. One of my favorite parts of the movie, just these kids playing baseball on the street, goofy outfits and everything. <laughs> he just gets the ball and he's going to throw it back to them. And he just releases it completely sideways just to <laughs> kind of get rid of the ball and then he just kind of stares kind of smirking at the kids for what feels like a whole minute and it's such a great introduction to the deadpan comedy that's going to come out like throughout this movie even in the harshest circumstances but as he visits his wife we get a match cut from him lighting a cigarette to a gun firing uh the the yakuza members that they were staking out shooting up the police squad sans katano as he's just visiting his wife uh helpless to the situation as we said his partner uh has a very tragic storyline that follows the partner is paralyzed in the shootout and his wife and kid left him because he's just a crippled ex-cop so all he can do is paint and takeshi Uh, feels like all this guilt for that and also like one of those cops died so he has to like kind of deal with that guy's ex-wife girlfriend kind of character and you know despite the fact that they tell him you know obviously there's nothing he could have done uh he's just shouldering all of this guilt and is no longer a cop himself now i I believe off screen he quits i'm sure there's a lot that's kind of elided narratively um but yeah, once you get into that rhythm of like everything being established and you get that like he's just making he's making visits with the people who are grieving and he's making visits with the yakuza who he's borrowing money from uh one to get by and two to support uh his former cop uh partner and uh the family uh that uh, like of the deceased cop and of course the debts get him over in his head yeah the debts get him uh, way over his head and what is he going to do but rob a bank and how is he going <laughs> to rob a bank he's going to go to a scrapyard find a stolen taxi repaint it as a cop car and uh, go quote unquote back on duty for one last shift and uh, that's just so sick <laughs> yeah and you know what I love about like Kitano and just like kind of his instincts in general because like you know him going to you know dress up uh, his that taxi car as a cop. I feel like there's more focus on that, just him spraying the taxi white than there is, you know, maybe than the actual robbery itself. Yeah. And, and like, I, I don't know, there's just a, such a great use of, like, silence in his movies, whether it's just, like, I don't know, kind of, like, whether it's the flashbacks or kind of, like, characters just kind of, you know, hanging out by themselves. Like, I feel like he... He implements silence in a way where things like they actually sound like silent. You know, there's not a lot of like like a background, like, yeah. you know, like small background noise. It really is like 
super, super quiet. Yeah, the sound mix puts like room tone and background stuff really, really low in the mix. Like no matter what's happening, kind of. And it almost feels kind of surreal and dreamlike, even in scenes that are supposed to be played, you know, kind of straight ahead. But yeah, and I feel like it just takes interest in stuff like, like him kind of spray painting the taxi white and like, I don't know, like I, it, in turn, it, you know, gets the viewer, me, you know, more interested in kind of like these small details and like, I don't know. And then some stuff, you know, some of the, the more flair, you know, stuff or, you know, like the violence, it's kind of like delivered in a way that's not necessary. Like there's a lot of blood. It's like brutal, but at the same time, it's like kind of succinct and like somewhat, I guess, you know, unsatisfying. You're not, you're not admiring the violence for like the sick moves. So he's very quick and very just like, kind of like, what needed to be done. Yeah. A lot of times it'll be like somewhat off screen and it's like the pool of blood is on screen or one body part is on screen. He's using the negative space in the violence, uh, just as much as he's using it in conversation and kind of just as elliptical as he is with the narrative on the whole. I love that first meeting. He takes the Yakuza guys in the bar when he just stabs the dude in the eye with the chopstick. Oh, hell that is yeah. just fucking insane. Like the, he, the violence really packs a punch in this movie. You really fucking feel it. It seems like every person, <laughs> it's so funny. Like every, like almost every guy along the way, he just has to, he has to whack at a yeah. certain point. So you're just kind of <laughs> like waiting for, uh, you know, his decision, you know? Um, so yeah, as we said, he's borrowing money. Uh, he wants to support his ex-partner's art project, uh, which as we said, kind of just kind of gets more and more depressing as he goes too. <laughs> it's like he's finding more and more inspiration kind of through this art, having this therapeutic experience, but it just, the art itself becomes so depressing. And, uh, of course ending with the one that's titled suicide and just has this huge splash of red paint in the middle and that's like after a pretty touching scene between Takeshi and his wife, we cut to that and it's like, oh yeah, this is a pretty downhill movie from here. <laughs> like it's, you know, we, we could ride high on the action for a minute, but a uh, pretty depressing scenario. Well, I like the uh, kind of turn to like the road trip with your dying wife at the end there. Like, I don't know, uh, that, I mean, because it's also a part of the more, I don't know, I feel like where he's on the run a bit, but it combines that tone there where it has those moments to sort of be quietly reflexive mm -hmm. and also kind of goofy too like yeah they, you know they they take a photo together with a self-timer and a car just like slowly drives in front of the camera and they both are kind of just deadpan for a minute and then they're both just laughing and i think that that like release is so great after so much of the cathartic violence is over with they are able to like actually laugh at things and not just have these deadpan reactions, despite the fact that the film is still moving at this very deliberate pace because there's still this very impeding doom for both characters. You know, you'd have to think Katano's character, you know, after that bad event, he could look at the bright side, you know, he could spend some more time with his wife, you know, even if, uh, you know, she's, you know, ailing in the hospital. But, uh, you know, it, it is, it is, it is, because it is kind of funny how like, it seems to just well not funny it's sad how he like ignores his wife at first and i don't know yeah seeing those moments whether it's like kind of like pleasant or it's just like kind of like quiet and like just kind of nice like that it is it, it's a good uh kind of like very very like light amount of sweetness to this movie that kind of uh and i mean that's a certain balance i to think it. it is funny that like he has to go through like 
this fucked up turn of events to like reconnect to his wife True. before he yeah. like kind of old yellers her. <laughs> um, old yellers. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> well, that's one way to read the. Ending. I was gonna say. Oh, I mean, I, I, fair enough, yeah, it could not. I be mean, that. he's been he's been he's been taking care of people been throughout the movie. Care of business. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, before the very ending, the last uh, like run in with the yakuza is insane. It's just in this completely whited out. Uh, like resort looking thing and they're just in the snow in this white car and he just takes out all of them uh, after re-injuring the guy he stabbed in the eye in the beginning. He's now wearing an eye patch. Uh, And it's just this like quick and swift violence in this completely whited out area and you get this beautiful overhead shot of him uh, killing the last guy and then getting out of the car. But then like that overhead shot on a crane like does like this crazy 360 motion and then swoops down to kind of follow him for a little bit. And it just feels like the most ridiculous, like kind of camera flexing moment that you have until uh, that crane shot at the beach at the very end. No, yeah, because like there's something, you know, very well measured to the camera work here and it kind of fits the tone and everything else in the movie. But then, yeah, like, like you said, that, that sequence really kind of provides just some some crazier stuff. I feel like it there there are like some bolder, you know, imagery decisions as things like kind of go along. Like even one that's a little bit more understated, kind of like when he's at him and his wife are at the church or whatever, and oh, there's yeah. like a bell, and like you know the dad tell there's a dad and his kid, and he's telling the kid, "Hey, don't ring the bell." They leave or they go towards like the arches, and then like. You know, Katano showing the kid to go his own way, you know, rings the bell. That's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. And then, like, you get, like, that that kind of, like, very distant shot of, like, uh, it's, like, I think, is it the kid and the son? And then, like, like yeah. these two cats almost, like, kind of framing them in the doorway. Like, it's just very, like, a, yeah, it's, it's almost like, like he set up the camera in there and just waited for that perfect moment almost. It's, like, the two cats and the the older man and the kid all just, like, kind of pause at the sound of that church bell. And uh, it's just Takeshi joking around with them, kind of. Yeah. But it's, like, such a beautiful moment using that wide open space and the silence and the kind of protracted sense of pacing um, that just uh, just hit a little grace note on along the way before he goes and kills like six dudes <laughs> in, in five minutes. <laughs> I mean, that's the best part about any, you know, road trip movie. You know, not quite a road trip movie, but there's a good portion where it's a road trip. It's like, yeah. Along the way, you got to hit some grace notes, you know, as yeah. a director. Well, I mean, the title uh, scene, the fireworks scene, yeah. is just incredible where they're just having a little uh, nighttime outdoor picnic kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I don't I don't really know what to say. There's a goofy little gag where he sets off and, you know, uh, the fireworks aren't going off. So he, like, goes to mess with it and then it explodes right in his face. Pretty funny. Uh, but then the fireworks up in the sky go off and it fades over her face and then goes back to the paintings of his friend. And I don't know, just the... Uh, the poetry and the artistry uh, alongside the melancholy of everyday life, I feel like, are all tied together there, as well as the scene where he's spray painting the car and it fades back to the the paintings that his friend is making as well. And it's like, sure, maybe if, if you're looking for a statement on uh, like art and life and tragedy and stuff, it's like, maybe you're not going to find the most coherent thing, but it is all kind of right there for you to just pick at however way you see fit, you know, especially with the kind of ambiguous ending. I feel like 
this whole movie is somewhat open to interpretation with what it's really trying to say about all those elements. No, yeah, exactly. Like you could unpack, you know, maybe find something, but it really is kind of like small moments alongside the movie that kind of just hit, you know, certain notes, especially through through editing too. And it's 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 good that uh, Katano edited that edited this because it just makes him even more talented. But like, I, yeah, sometimes like his because uh, you know the way he like cross cuts kind of before in the beginning with like kind of between that incident you know, the incident where, you know, everyone gets injured and murdered and like the present just like, I feel like just uh, strike certain tones of like, kind of like, uh, just reflecting on the past and like how it's affecting, you know, the present and what, so just, yeah, a lot of great editing that hurts certain emotional notes in the movie that, you know, that's what editing was invented for right there. I'm just full ACAB. I wasn't touched by any of the melancholy in this. I like all these fucking pigs got what they deserved. Their the wife deserves to die too, just because she married a cop. That's wow. true. I mean, if we're going into the the you know the copaganda anti copaganda realm, you know what I mean? These wives are responsible for who they marry. They know who they're marrying beforehand, and maybe should those characters in the fantasy realms in which they inhabit and in real life, maybe the women are responsible too. So maybe you're saying you don't feel bad for uh, Vic Mackey's wife and the the sho- the the load that she's shouldered with with her sick kids. <laughs> that's I mean, Vic, well, if it's about the kids, that's entirely different. I'm, I'm always about to save the children. <laughs> believe, believe children movement. Um, but uh, that is rough. Vic Mackey bringing home a, um, a sex worker's wife, uh, a sex worker's kid for her to take care of. You know, oh, yeah, and her just being like, arc. there's nothing going on. There's nothing going on. And she's like, okay. <laughs> that is an intense episode where he just has to like chill with this uh, prostitute while she like detoxes off of crystal meth so he can interrogate her for information <laughs> it's like look you gotta watch this girl's kid <laughs> Vic. that's the best part of the show it's like making vic Mackey like somewhat a hero too because it's like you know of course it's playing with the, that ambiguity but it's just like wow this guy really does everything you could ever do in like a day he does like the worst thing in the world and the best thing in the world and that's what makes it okay you do the awful things and amazing things. All about. Yeah. <laughs> you do the worst thing in the world one day. You do the best thing in the world the next day. That's what putting on the blues all about. <laughs> it rules. It um, rules. The ambiguous ending, though. So, like the, these two uh, cops come to take him away uh, after his violent crimes have been exposed. And uh, yeah, Katano has two in the chamber. We see off screen as like this little girl is dancing and you know like these cops grant him just like a a couple minutes to just sit with his dying wife at the beach and look out at the ocean and uh, then we hear two off-screen gunshots and the possibilities hey you never know although i guess jt if we're gonna if we're gonna let's do let's become cops ourselves here if we're gonna you know let's go to the crime scene yeah the silence s- here is you know, the silence here it's kind of a long distance for him to go run up yeah. pop the cops probably is probably is him and his wife that he took took out of this earth <laughs> could, be, could be could be there's also quite a bit of uh quite a bit of time 
for those guys to come up to take True. him away. They could have just walked up right behind him. You see like the footprints of, of where Takeshi was coming from to sit there with her. You see like what you don't see the cops on screen. You, they're off screen for that whole mm-hmm. time, even that crane shot. But uh, don't you, you never s- know. You see him like the shot of him loading his gun. Is that before the cops arrive? That, that's when they're in the rear view mirror behind him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before he talks to them. Yeah. So, I, you know, they could have walked up to him, said, hey, man, it's time to go. And then he just shoots both cops. Yeah. That's true. We're good. We're good. Or uh, maybe he shoots one cop. Other cop shoots him. I was going to say, maybe he just fired a couple in the air for the hell of it. <laughs> yeah. could uh, be. It's been a hell of a life. <laughs> could be. Because you get, a, you get that reaction shot from that little girl who's on the beach. True. But it's just complete indifference. Like, she yeah, just true. then takes on the Katano stone face reaction. <laughs> Still, well, that makes me think he died and spirit went into her. So. Okay, <laughs> I'm I'm back and forth here. Um, <laughs> I guess that's it. Any, yeah. any final thoughts on this one, JT? Do you are are you are you excited to go back to Katano? Yeah, eventually. I, I think I want to do another. I mean, this like was not what I was expecting at all. And uh, are his films like similar in tone to this? Yeah, like, I mean, I I had just seen a Violent Cop a couple weeks ago, his directorial debut strikes a similar tone but not as melancholic just in terms of the pacing and i think that's what really opens it up for him in this movie is like attributing that uh kind of art house pacing to a melancholic feeling rather than just like the slow burn of just takeshi being a violent cop for a hundred minutes yeah, that's that's what I. Violent kinda, Cop is just him being a yeah. violent cop. <laughs> it's a good, mo- it's a really good movie, but it's not quite on this level. I think. No, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I feel like his his kind of sense of pacing more than anything else is something I kind of uh, stamp him with. But also, I've never, I've seen him be funny in movie, but I, I've never seen like a funny movie. He's, I need to see him be funny. Oh, I'm, dude, I'm getting sure. any is exactly. the funniest movie. Like that, that's the one oddball in his filmography. I think he made it like some somewhat as a fuck you to the studio that he was under contract for or something like that, mm-hmm. where uh, it's just this insane kind of sketch comedy movie that spins out from the premise of a guy wanting to buy a car so that he can have sex in it. I want I want to watch. He did a movie with uh, I think Omar Epps in oh, like wow. two thousand. It's called like Brother. Damn. <laughs> Literally, it's called, I think it's rush hour exploitation. Maybe yeah. I don't know. I'm, it might even be too much for me to say that, but yeah. it, it seems it seems like that one could be fun too. God damn it! I was gonna pull it up, and then I just pulled up my browser. And it's just that Fraser screenshot. <laughs> Him getting Catherine arrested. Dent. Catherine Dent looking shocked. I think we just gotta watch some Fraser boys. That's uh, that's gotta be this week's bonus <laughs> for for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> no, that I said like I'm calling it a wrap on this week's bonus. Oh, I get you. I get you. So we I get watch you. some Frasier. Yeah, man, fire it up. Oh boy. All right. Uh, we'll see you on the main feed for uh, Bergman and Mamma Mia next week's Patreon for. All right, wow. Malcolm, your voice was a lot higher. <laughs> yeah, my balls <laughs> dropped finally in, in, uh, in the time I've done this podcast. I became a man. Uh, lights camera, Malcolm? Yeah, lights, yeah there's a, a, a dark parallel that like me and Lights Camera Jackson are kind of born like pretty close to the same day. You know, it's almost like 
the two separate paths you can take in life, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, it is. Anyone who listened to that, it, I, you know, it'd be fun to compare and contrast. Are we? Did we get worse or are we better? You know what I mean? Uh, who knows? You know, let us know. I skimmed through it. It was a pretty standard episode. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the actual. Well, I I clipped out the review. The episode itself has like ten minutes of us talking about the guy who played Julian on the Shield. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot and to that's talk like, about there. But... That's a plus material. Yeah. That guy's <laughs> that guy's in jail for murder. Yeah. <laughs> free him. And he was in Boogie Nights. You know, gotta free him. Free gotta him. free him. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson should make a uh, anti-incarceration movie and free him in the process. I got my buddy from Boogie Nights back. <laughs> Anytime someone goes to jail, I just have an instinct to free them, you know, whether they deserve it or not. I'm, I'm just, my first thought is like, we got to get that guy out of there. You hate the carceral state so much. True. I think it's that, you know, but also I, maybe even something else. I'm not quite sure. Would you still want to ki- uh, free young thug if he killed your brother? Uh, well, no. See, obviously, <laughs> you know, but what about it wasn't a, my brother. What about a guy, a guy at your brother's school? Um, see, I don't, yeah, I don't really care. Um, like, like that's, yeah, that's the thing. Like people really did, so, you know, it's like, didn't happen to me, you know, I don't know. He's brought me a lot of joy. I was listening to some young thug last night. Great line. Pussy motherfucker. Afraid to say it to my front. So I'm blowing out his back. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> I feel like he used to have a lot of lyrics about like being gay and fucking guys in the butt and uh, wore dresses and stuff. And then when anyone like asked him about an interview, he's like, "What?" I think that's the gay. Are you kidding didn't, me? He didn't rap about being gay. <laughs> he did wear a dress or two, but <laughs> I think that was his gayest line. I, he he, he liked to hint at it. He liked to hint at it though, for sure. Yeah, no, he, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make a point yeah, yeah. here, but he in the mid 2010s was absolutely provoking people to think he was like a cross dresser or gay or something like that. And then anytime it was brought up in an interview, it was like, Oh, Whoa, no, dude, no, I love pussy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he was, he was one of the early, and we found out how much he loved (laughs) pussy when he went to jail for it. He he went to jail for other stuff. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's an early adopter of the act gay theory where it's like, if you just act a little bit, bit more gay it might work things might work out for you you know what i mean things (laughs) Things might work out for you if you're someone in the public not even getting women but just like things will pan out better (laughs) act gay hashtag act gay hmm interesting Interesting. (laughs) um So, uh, as we move through Takeshi Katana's career, uh, after his massive success with Hanabi, and it's more of just like it became a cult classic and it had really good reviews and stuff, but uh, that's really when it was like clear that he was an artist and everyone was taking him seriously. And it's like, yeah, it took long enough, like seven movies and a couple classics, but... Uh, then he goes away to Hollywood in 1999 to shoot Brother. Uh, this is his one American movie, and it's him and Omar Epps uh, as, I guess, the titular. No, that's not his actual brother. Uh, <laughs> that's the the play on words of the title, though. You <laughs> yeah, know, obviously. Yes, uh, yes. But anyway, uh, he said that he did not like doing that. He did, uh, you know, just didn't like shooting a Hollywood movie, and. 
you know what you know what he does he comes back to japan and makes two incredibly japanese movies with dolls and zatoichi uh, Zatoichi, of course, is the film serial of the Blind Swordsman. There are some really incredible entries in that series. I would just check out the first one. Um, you know, just like it, there's good stuff, just check it out. But anyway, uh, Takeshi Kitano does a reboot of that, and he also does Dolls, which is very indebted to classical Japanese theater. And I feel like that was like his. Uh, I don't know, his reaction to going to the U.S. and making a Hollywood movie was like, no, I am, like, as we were talking about in part one, an important Japanese artist. And I think that's what's really at the forefront of Dolls is the uh, Japanese theater. And this is exposing my ignorance and the ignorance of everybody online because I can't find any clarification in any reviews about this, whether it was No or Kabuki uh, that the puppetry is supposed to represent. It's a uh, bunraku. It's saying I'm, bunraku. Okay, I'm not. I'm not quite. Uh, familiar. I don't know what any of it. Like, I don't have a good yeah, understanding no, exactly. of it. But I. Yeah, that's I had the a thing. Name. And but the, that's the thing is, you know, that it's indebted to Japanese history, mm-hmm. and you think about other Japanese movies we've watched that are indebted to theater of this type, like the Ozu uh, movie. Is it late? Yeah, late spring, where they go to that no drama, and it's one of the most compelling scenes in all of Ozu's movies, even though you don't know what the fuck's going on on stage. It's just because of, you know, the context there and the tradition of the theatrical uh, experience there and how it affects this particular family. So in this movie, Dolls, it starts with, you see uh, some puppetry going on representing this type of theater. And right away, a sense of artificiality is called into a play where uh, like you you see the the sets change over uh, on this thing and uh, before any drama or any dialogue or anything like that. So you're aware of the level of artifice right away. But slowly we cut from uh, this puppet show into the reality that it's showcasing us. And we, we see kind of the, the two characters that link us between the three stories we're going to see in Dolls, which are this, this wandering couple who are tied together to uh, wander the earth, I guess. I do like the doll, but I love, uh, and obviously this is brought back, I love the how he caps the, the puppet theater segment with uh, the two dolls staring directly into camera. I don't know, just a, yeah. a mm-hmm. motif it seems like throughout his work, kind of like... A, looking into not looking into but kind of shooting characters straight at you know straight at it and like yeah just to have the dolls do it too kind of a i like yeah i mean those those opening images of the dolls yeah immediately call to mind his deadpan style and it's like oh that's a one-to-one thing right there is that he can be just like these marionette dolls but he's pulling his own strings i guess uh the presentation, the wide shot has a little bit of humor in it where it's like just these dudes dressed in all black because it's such a complex set of puppets that you need like five guys manning them or whatever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, then once we get into that reality, um, we see this couple like walking through the cherry blossoms and we see that motif come up again that we saw a lot in scene at the sea where we see the regular well-adjusted people kind of just like pointing and laughing, yeah. you know. <laughs> And uh, we, we see we sympathize with the outsiders, of course. Yeah, they call them the begging couple, or yeah. like they're beggars or something like that. Mm-hmm. Ain't too proud to beg. Yes, but uh, they are the couple that links us between these three stories that we have here, and all of these stories are fairly tragic. Uh, the first one we see shows a 
a couple that was perfectly happy, but then the guy goes off and gets into an arranged marriage with his boss's daughter. And then because of that, his girlfriend, who he was perfectly happy with, attempts suicide and has like permanent brain damage from it. So we see him like trying to kind of nurse her back after he uh, runs away from the wedding. And it's a very strange uh, kind of drama. How did, how did you feel about the first segment? I mean, the whole film in general, like, I love the imagery of it, but I don't know. Sometimes it, like, is a little abstract that I can't quite put my finger on it. You get a lot of, like, jumping throughout, like, timelines. I mean, obviously, that's very apparent, like, particularly in their story, just because the flashbacks are so, like, obviously, when she is uh, vocal and uh, speaking with them, like, you know, you're in the past there. Um, but a lot of it is just them driving and just sort of, again, like classic Katano staring off into the distance. Um, but you, you get a lot of beautiful images there, some of which I don't necessarily know what to do with. Like the, you get some, again, it's very beautiful, but uh, he shows her this little like cup and ball toy where you can like blow yeah. into it and this like pink ball like sort of rises up and there's a, this amazing shot where they're in the like very bright like yellow car that kind of looks like a cab um, and she's like sitting outside and you just see the ball like popping up and down in like the window. Kind of like shifts the perspective there I think into a false nighttime with yeah. a totally fake background you see that toy bouncing up against the moon in the background. It is gorgeous. Yeah, but the scene there is weird because it's like he's just treating it's like oh she has the mind of a child i'm gonna go buy her some cheap toys that a cat might like you yeah. know <laughs> no this i mean i think jt kind of you know he said it like i am a bit confounded by this movie for sure like uh, like yeah it, it, oh me yeah. too well, let's yeah. get this yeah. out of the way yeah <laughs> i i i gotta say i did not care for this movie yeah uh, let alone confounded by it but i'm i'm here to walk yeah there. absolutely yeah. no I, I definitely liked it you know probably somewhat lightly you know what i mean just because i think yeah. uh katano has a strong grasp on tone and uh imagery yeah, sure. of course you know that's those are the two kind of main tenets of his you know his filmmaking and it's it's still on display here even if it's kind of to more <clears throat> confusing ends and kind of i don't know kind of seems to just kind of revel in kind of uh you know sadness and like romantic failure but i think you know like regarding the first one like there's still like enough, uh, you know, where I'm not, not like it's a little light on plot, I guess, you know, a, li a little bit at the beginning where he has to like leave, you know, his job or whatever. And uh, yeah, I feel like this story has like five minutes of a hundred things happening and then 45 minutes of them just kind of walking yeah. around and shit. No, that's a yeah, good way to put it. That's, that's very funny. Um, but I think there's like the way and he does this. Um, you know, to the other stories too, like the way Kitano, K Kitano kind of uh, doles out his information, you know, kind of using uh, a, a unique kind of editing pattern, uh, you know, kind of we're not getting the story linear like a lot of them. We see them in their current day and then we kind of flash back in regards to the couple subplot and like, you know, the ex-fiance who tried to kill herself. Like there's a lot of kind of going in and out of the story there that... I think it's very like delicate and like kind of presents it, you know, a very, you know, sad thing in a, in a way that gives it more 
of a punch but you're right in kind of like as yeah. the movie kind of goes along it is it does just kind of become very vague i guess but the imagery of it is still strong that's something that i struggle with because i feel like uh in the other katano things that we've seen and discussed so far I, it just feels like he's uh, like a master at like this juxtaposition of tone and here there are moments where it feels like he's swinging for more conventional like melodramatic emotional beats um but the abstraction of it and sort of the cold remove that exists in his other films just like kind of prevents you from like connect or I mean at least in my instance prevented me from connecting to it fully like especially this like main story with the couple yeah like I it's just you have that sort of like dump of plot information at the very beginning and then I like all of the compositions that follow um in their story and I I like sort of the ultimate end of it but yeah, along the way, it's I I don't know I struggle to uh, I don't know feel for them or like I don't know get get much out of and, it. And yeah, I mean the images are great all the way through. There is no doubt about that, and the tonal control is fantastic. I just I don't really like the tone of the movie. It's very like uh, I don't know. We talked about this with a scene at the sea, you know, emo katano like. You know, everyone, everyone's killing themselves and fucking being all, oh, my, my girlfriend, oh, I'm going to go to the old park bench. I used to see my girlfriend. At, you know, no. It's just like uh, he's, it's Katana reaching like Spielbergian levels of maudlin. And it's fine because like he gets away with that in other movies. It's not like I, I, I like Katano on the whole a lot more than Spielberg. And because those moments exist in five minute passages, not for 150 minute passages like they do for spielberg uh who i also intensely admire on an aesthetic level mm -hmm. you know but this is the one for me where like katano's bad instincts dramatically kind of don't work for me and it's just like you know i love going to galleries and looking at frames for three yeah. hours you know like i so i don't hate this movie like i say that non-sarcastically yeah. that sounds like me being snippy and rude no, about the movie but like yeah. i do love just like oh that's a great image that's a good image too okay i could watch this okay you know like it's it's not like i hate the movie it's just like it doesn't work for me narratively at all yeah i like especially that first story the segment that is the strongest for me and i feel like it's because there are beats it's the most where Katano's able to tap into the comedy is the uh, like he's not like a security. It's kind of like a construction yeah, yeah. guard. The third one with the that's, pop star that's obsessed yeah. with a pop star because you get those great bits where you see this like elegant like pop star or I mean not elegant but like it's this TV staging yeah, like of ritzy, this like, pop yeah. star like lights and then you cut back and forth to like a grown man in his room like dancing and listening to it like on a CD player yeah. and that stuff is really funny and I feel like that like the level of remove in that story of his like obsession with someone who he really doesn't know is the most that I feel like that kind of like the story works and I love the way that's told. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know just the other two aren't. And I mean that one I feel like is probably the shortest sort of story mm -hmm. or is the, no, it just feels like it cause it's actually pretty good. It yeah. comes in at like 60 minutes. Oh wow. 
uh, like at the 60 minute mark of the movie. So it's like 55 minutes or so. It's it's most of the movie almost. Uh, and it's just that, that fir- those first two never really get off the ground, especially the second. Okay. The second one is a snooze and a half. Like that one is just the, the old Yakuza dude, like simping for his girlfriend that he used to hang out with on a park bench every day. It's like, okay, we're going to get some Yakuza intrigue, right? And it's just like, no, not really. Yeah. And again, there's great images throughout it. So I wasn't falling asleep or anything. I was able to pay attention to it. It just like, I, I, I don't know with Katano's really slow style, especially like, uh, cause I, I was talking earlier about his like maudlin sensibility once in a while. And it's always for like one plot beat, right? It's just mm-hmm. like one scene that, or one thing that happens in a movie that doesn't sit right with me. His overriding style is that very slow languid one. And so when you're not interested in the drama, the slow languid style is not tense. It's boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I agree with that assessment and it's just it's something with the plotting of it where it's you're not like I like the like reading the description of dolls I was super excited because Me too. I love the that type of romantic uh, storytelling especially one that has sort of like a sad angle to it I feel like there are a lot of I mean obviously like classic Hollywood Bollywood movies that do that, but those styles are so different from obviously what Katano does, and I feel like it just doesn't. It, it's a bad fit for a yeah. lot of it. And also, here's here's a question. I don't know that we'll be able to answer. Like, what is like the connection or like point of like the doll theme in relation to like the three stories we have, other than like. Like, I get, like, with the artificial, like, artificiality yeah. of it. I, I like, what is that trying like, to achieve, I guess? I guess it's just trying to get out a notion of the history of storytelling itself as, like, one of the great arts, kind of. Sure. Like, these theatrical experiences are, like, these epic stories with interlocutors coming through and, like, explaining other stuff and stories within stories and everything. And so I, I, I feel like he's just adding an extra layer for the sake of that. And it... Yeah, like, maybe it's a lost in translation thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it works in the history of that style of theater much more than in this one. Because, uh, like, I don't want to just be like, oh, that doesn't work. Maybe there's a hundred plays like that that work because they're like that, you know. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I kind of agree where it's like those connective pieces, it doesn't really do much for me other than to actually, like, bring it all to Because then after you get that last story, I, I said it comes in in an hour and it's like 50 minutes. It's actually a little shorter than that because you spend like 15 minutes with those bridging characters yeah. Yeah. toward the end. And that's that's kind of a slog too. Uh, other than that final image, which is insane of them uh, like toppling over and hanging over that cliff. And it's that super artificial image. And then it cuts to the dolls in that pose to bring it back to the framing device. And I that's like the best image mm. of the movie to me. No, I, 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 yeah. I kind of almost like these the the tethered walking couple towards the end because it just kind of a kind of makes more sense to me i guess than some of the other stuff i mean sense being kind of a i don't know like but like like i don't know i kind of just was appreciating it like almost like a slow cinema level you know what i mean with that and i was just able to soak in the imagery and kind of like uh 
we get some seasonal play, you know what I mean? Summer, winter, fall, <laughs> spring. Seasonal play. play. Seasonal oh play um, from the director. Oh. What? There's nothing wrong with playing, playing around. Um, there's like a moment kind of towards the back of end of the movie where he kind of intercuts the three storylines. And like there's yeah. like uh, the image of like the you know older Yakuza guy and his old girlfriend sitting on the bench overlaid with like the audio of one of the other stories and like i kind of like i thought at that moment i'm like okay he's about to like go off like he's about to do like some yeah and that moment when that happens i do enjoy that a lot just because i don't know it's just some simple juxtaposition kind of like on a formal level maybe more than anything else i enjoy it but uh he doesn't quite do that you know the stories kind of don't they connect more thematically than like kind of like um well that they don't even like they kind of are just similar thematically they don't like compare mm-hmm. and contrast really you know so it's kind of i don't know like the yeah the storylines is kind of yeah i agree with you the gangster storyline it is kind of like there's nothing really there too it's just like he's just kind of wandering and like thinking about the girl and you know sitting with her because at first i was kind of almost you know on a mockish you know spielbergian level i kind of just like the thought of like you know, and this is in other movies, but I'm like, damn, like, like a girlfriend you had when you were like 21 and you're like in your 60s, like, dang, I should have married her. That, that, like that kind of uh, idea. I was like, oh, fuck, that's, that's kind of a powerful idea in a sense. And then, I mean, that, that's like kind of the, the engine that steams the whole, that whole plot point. So it, it kind of runs out of steam at a certain point, obviously. Yeah. It's just stuff where it's like the initial sort of idea I feel like offers you something to think about in terms of amusing on sort of love and relationships and just sort of the sadness of like, uh, I don't know, just sort of missed opportunities mm-hmm. uh, within life. But again, I think because there's a real lack of like narrative kind of guiding it, it's hard for it to amount to much for me and i think that's like intertwined with like a lot of stuff where it's just material that is so like heavily like culturally ingrained where i'm like confused sometimes Mm -hmm. especially there's the just sort of wall of masks Mm -hmm. that happens where it's like against like a like entirely like black backdrop like i think that imagery is neat but again it doesn't I, i struggle to get anything out of it um, any final thought, or I guess th- that sounds like final thoughts, uh, a rating on this one. I mean, everything said, I feel like I am going to go like three bullets because it's still the strength of the one segment. I feel like it is like lightly likable for me. There's like a vexing quality to it where I wish there was more, uh, like compelling things written about it. Cause I'd love to read an argument uh, like in favor of the film of someone yeah. who's able to sort of defend uh, Kitano's plotting with this. I'd like to. I'd like to get. Uh, I'm going to issue an extended clip challenge to <laughs> friend of the show Neil Bahader because I've been chatting with him a little about Kitano and this is one of his favorites. Yeah, and uh, he unfortunately only has like a couple sentences on Letterbox. So I'm issuing a challenge, Neil. You gotta write. Uh, you gotta write five thousand words. Convince <laughs> the skeptics. You know. We, you know? Yeah. <laughs> extended clip homework I'm, assignment. I'm gonna be Neil's manager now. Like, <laughs> now's the time for a doll's review. You could get. You could get a lot of traction on a doll's review.
a letterboxd manager taking 10 percent of the likes because there's no money <laughs> i mean it's it's not an easy job man brad pitt fucking screwed me man i thought i, I thought i was a. I can't i i couldn't think of a brad pitt letterbox manager joke there but it well was the thing is we can't talk about it there's like a nda situation <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. yeah let's just say it ended badly uh, yeah, I had to drop my client because my client started at first. It was really promising reviews of like silent movies, yeah. uh, oh, like God, animated films. Uh, but then a lot of a lot of bad political junk happened there. And I just don't I can't I uh, can't really talk about that either. There's no room for political junk on Letterboxd. That's all I got. to Yeah, say. exactly. Keep, exactly. Keep politics out of movies. <laughs> D.W. Griffith has made his first political movie. <laughs> Too bad that it reignited the KKK. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad it's racist. Yeah. <laughs> Malcolm, a rating on this one, Dolls? I'm going to give it three bullets as well, just because, mm-hmm. you know, when the movie has a lot of still, like slower scenes, like you, you kind of like, you're in your head kind of racking your brain trying to like, you know, get the movie or something like that. And in that process, like, you know, I was still maybe, you know, a little bit bored by other segments, but like, like I've said, like five times before, Katana's sense of imagery is kind of enough to in like get through this movie. And I could kind of like, I'm not like, I kind of like the idea of kind of reveling in sadness, I guess, in a way, like that's, that's something I'm not against. And like, you know, kind of like the sad irony of like the pop star and the blind fan right like i'm kind of i'm kind of getting into that a little bit um so like you know there's still stuff to enjoy but yeah it is it is like it does seem like there's some context cultural context missing but you know also you know with one of the image stronger images being the last one right that eddie described with the the tethered couple and then you pair that with that that doll uh, the dolls looking into camera, which I, you know, previously said I liked. Sometimes a couple strong images at the end could kind of uh, boost your score here. That extended clip, you know, a nice uh, snappy ending. Uh, so, you know, it's it's interesting. And I think it was a good choice, Eddie, for the Katano series just because absolutely, um, I hadn't seen a movie that Katano directed that he hadn't star- that he didn't star in. You know what I mean? And obviously, I feel like those are going to be. Um, you know, it sounds like getting any, like, it sounds like similar, like in that Mm. Katano could have played that role for sure. But it's like, I don't know. They're just going to have a different vibe to them, obviously. And, uh, he's got a lot of, I don't know if they're like this, but he's got a lot of like, you know, dramas. It seems like, 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 uh, I don't know if at least a few, I mean, he doesn't have a ton of movies. His filmography is fairly taught for a guy who's been around Mm. as long as he has, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's managed. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm interested to get into that side of him because obviously the the artistic gangster movies are going to be right up mm-hmm. my alley, right? Like that's 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 easy pickings. But I, yeah. um, it seems like there's a lot to Katano that I'd love to see in other genres. So even you know this one, I'm not so hot on. I'm still still hot on him. You know, I still like him yeah. coming I, out of this movie. I would definitely uh, I would definitely recommend you go back and hit uh, a scene mm-hmm. in the sea then. Because yeah, if you don't if you don't fuck with that one, I would be very surprised. And the other one uh, I didn't end up watching yet is Kikujiro in that vein. But yeah, a scene at the sea, the melodrama. Like if you're positive on this movie, I think you would maybe even give like a five or a four and a half mm-hmm. to a scene at the sea. 
that's what held it because I gave it a three and a half. I still thought a scene of the sea was really, really good. I just I didn't like the last maybe fifteen minutes of it, kind of, which is rare for me. I've talked about this on this podcast. I've never been a guy who's like, oh, the ending ruined it for me. You yeah. know, like that. That's not me at all. But that really left a bitter taste in my mouth, and it also, uh, like, it it kind of brought out some tendencies throughout the movie that I was slightly annoyed by, and kind of validated them. Uh, from his point of view, I guess. But regardless, uh, I would definitely wreck a scene at the sea to you, uh, which I said was three and a half bullets. This movie, Dolls, I am going to give a disappointing two bullets. Takeshi Kitano, two bullets, I know. It's, we rarely it's, give out low scores on the show, so it is like whenever we uh, Well, because yeah. we pick yeah. movies that we are going to like. Exactly, yeah. You know? so when's the last time we did a bad movie on this? You know? We should do one soon. Actually, yeah. I yeah. wanted to we do a bad movie. We used to do a movie. lot more. We used yeah. to do, when I lived with you, for some reason, you made us do so many like sequels of bad movies. Like we did Sex in the City 2 and Baby Geniuses 2. Ooh, I remember <laughs> watching Baby Geniuses 2. I think it's. That was rough. That was the hardest sit we've ever done for sure i was like i was on my laptop hunched over just like what are we i doing? i I, I was i was working at the time and i would just like sneak off from work and watch it in like 15 minute increments in my car <laughs> on a laptop 15 minutes of baby genius <laughs> that's so true. sus dude that's so that's awesome just like shaking when your coworker <laughs> knocks on the door oh, oh i'm not doing anything it's like, what were you watching? Just watching these these genius oh babies. Oh my god! Also, I saw Super Just Baby. Watching some babies. <laughs> I saw Super Baby Geniuses too in theaters as a kid. Yeah, I, I do remember doing that, and it's a pretty historic like it was bomb. An easier sit back then. Wasn't yeah. It? <laughs> but it, like, didn't the movie bomb, or maybe it was just critically derided or whatever, but kind of a legendary screening to catch at a young age, kind of, I, I think. Uh, yeah, legendary screening. <laughs> It makes for good <laughs> podcasting, though. We probably should do a, a bad movie. No, I want to. I and even some things like uh, Six Wives of Henry, Henry Lafay. It's been a while since we, we did the one danger. Of I, I really want to do uh, my five wives. My five Ooh. wives. Yeah, yeah. We should definitely do that. Yeah, the Six Wives of Henry Lafay was really, really bad. Um, I'm looking right now. It's like, oh, yeah, remember that bad movie podcast we did about I'm not there? <laughs> uh, no, but in terms of actual, like, bad bad movies, yeah. it's It's been a minute. Most of the uh, the episode numbers are pretty low on these. Uh, yeah, like, back, again, when we lived together, we did music. Remember oh, that? Yeah. that yeah, a- Lindsay brought that to us. That yeah, music was, music was an awesome pick. <laughs> yeah. That was I, great. I, I still judge Lindsay for making us watch that one. That was <laughs> that rough. That appalling that, like, that is like one of the yeah. most appalling yeah. movies like you know people say oh shot like that movie's shocking in a sense like it really is i think yeah the most out there bad movie pick i think that we have because all of them have a hook like henry F- lafay like that's our boy you know <laughs> yeah but like the most like what are we doing here was Cider House Rules. Yes. Oh my God. Oh, Cider House so- Rules. Was, what were we doing? There? I, that, <laughs> I have such fond memories of the, of I've recording the Cider House Rules. Forty thirty in the morning. For some reason, <laughs> I could not sleep, and I watched that very early in the morning. It sucked. Um, but like, I think because back when we did double features, we could always like tack on a True. shitty movie as a joke to counter the good movie. What was the 
what was this? It was a Malcolm pitch. Yeah. Absolutely. What Cider House that? Rules. It had to be, yeah. It's something, cause, and it was, we were all under the impression that there would be uh, a set of rules <laughs> to, to follow. Because to follow. <laughs> yeah. if I'll see it, I'll remember it. Oh, it was Never Die Alone, the DMX move. I think yeah. they're both. Which is. Oh, uh, wait. Mike. Wait, is it oh, someone okay. English this is, yeah, died? This is yeah. The dumbest idea of all. See, this is why we can't do double features anymore. It's because we get so lazy with your shit like this. Cider House rules never die alone. Uh, we pay tribute to two cultural icons who left us in the past week DMX and Prince Philip. Prince Philip. <laughs> That's funny. That's so funny. It's so like current eventy too. Like it's just so uh, <laughs> no, I mean, Never Die Alone was pretty sick. Um It's a good movie. Cider House rules like that movie sucks, but I kinda just like I could see myself almost Wait, but you so but Prince Philip, you just chose him like you chose a Michael <laughs> Kane <laughs> movie. <laughs> Like, there's no relation at all you're like well we might as well watch a michael kane movie if this british prince just died no just shoehorning in the cider house rules that is that's admirable that is like one of the most brilliant double features i ridiculous i i, I kind of like like i could see myself re-watching cider house rules just for like that really expensive 90s oscar movie vibe like obviously yeah. like that's like, you know, when people are like, oh, Limp Biscuit rules. And it's like, no, wait, I was there when Limp Biscuit released. It actually, like, sucked. It wasn't good. But it's like, mm-hmm. I find there's, I have some affection towards, like, 90s high-budget Oscar movies. They kind of have almost similar tones to them in a way. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, hey, our very first episode was on Scent of a Woman, yeah. speaking yeah. of 90s Oscar bait. You I know? think the worst pick, just in terms of, like discussion like in terms of how much we could get out of it was an early pick by me was the movie crackers by louis Mao louis mal and that that's yeah that was and that's rough. literally probably like the deepest cut movie we ever did too like i think at the beginning i was like you know we'll, we'll we're gonna like dig out some super obscure stuff and you know we we have to an extent but like obviously that's not the direction of the show but uh yeah i mean that that movie fucking sucked crackers i don't think crackers is the most obscure thing i think it's one of the more like can't you sort on letterbox yeah you have to scroll you can't sort by popularity uh reverse you have to scroll all the way down you know what the least popular movie we've talked about was what uh well technically it was uh i have blit happens on here fairly (laughs) brothers pilot i think we added that to letterbox yeah uh, okay, you want to do a little countdown? One, two, three, four, five. All right. Uh, the five least popular movies we've done an episode on. And all of these episodes did horribly <laughs> in terms of metrics. Number yeah, number five, Where East is East. Number four, Three Days of a Blind Girl. Number three, uh, Choi Hark's All About Women. Which actually, that episode did well because we paired it with Three Women by Altman. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two was The Six Wives. Or sorry, that's actually number three is The Six Wives of Henry LaFay. Number two was a pick of mine, Dead Solid Perfect, 
the uh, golf movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which, by it's the fun. way, that's still on the Extended Clip channel, racking up the views. <laughs> it's got like 100,000 views. And there's a lot Just of like people. like all like middle-aged men yeah. being like, I remember seeing this movie. This is such a great a golf movie. A lot of middle-aged men pointing out the uh, timestamps of nudity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you hooked it up. It's like, you hooked it up. I hooked it up. I got tits on YouTube. <laughs> that's all me. That is all me. I got the lady from Modern Romance. <laughs> Naked on YouTube. That is my hmm. archival. <laughs> uh, or is it's not the lady from Modern Romance? She's the other girl, I think. But anyway, uh, that is the second least popular or the second most obscure movie we've covered. Number one. Any any quick guesses? Monster Island, or maybe not. That that's probably that's up there. That's yeah. that's like top twelve. Another or so. good. It's I accidentally domed your oh. son. Which, oh, that makes which, sense. To be honest, I think these were all episodes. We had to make. I think. I think these are. Like yeah. The, I think we're we're doing good work. With They're them. foundational to the yeah. show. Sometimes I think it's nice to go against the grain yeah. and yeah. to do to do a weird, odd, deep cut. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, we're the only podcast for sure doing episodes on like I love it from behind and the Geisha Boy. <laughs> you know, I remember two other top fifteen picks. I remember I, I paired Bottom Snow 15, on the whatever. Bluff with a pretty crazy movie, and I'm like, you know. It's good to. It was uh, the von Sternberg oh, side. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm. But let's let's stop I'm jerking ourselves off. For that. Let's, I, I was. I'm making. No, that uh, sure. went like, I do not I went like, like that. Oh, you know. So. <laughs> you, I'll, I'll stand. I'll, I'll, we're not going to do a Malcolm in the Middle because we did one on part one, and all we're watching is stuff for the podcast right now. So yeah, you know, I, I how about a little other update? I I saw Zone of Interest. Okay. Yeah. Uh, zone of interest that was uh it was pretty good i gotta say pretty good not great pretty good respect the aesthetic approach for sure i think of the kind of uh cctv faux documentary things i've seen like attempt that style that it was pretty effective and it was like there were moments where i was like ah oh, man Oh, I just want the the camera to move into a close up. <laughs> yeah. Like it's so detached. I just want it to move into a close up. But that's the point, you know. He doesn't give you that satisfaction because it's a movie about bad people. Yeah. Uh, what's with these unlikable protagonists yeah. lately? Um, I was pretty down on the movie when I first saw it, and I have to say it did stick with me a little bit. So I feel like I have a pretty low rating on Letterboxd. It's grown a little bit in my estimation. I, I have to give him credit there. I mean, I'm still unsure about yeah. it, honestly. Like, I just, I like how much it, you know, it makes you think. Makes you think. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I like how much I had to wrestle with whether or not I yeah. liked it. You know, like, that's that's bonus points into itself. That's worth And something. the few segments where it goes into the, uh, what's it called? The UV black and white, like, uh, is insane. Like, that style with the score just pounding as hard as it goes is just, like, some of the craziest shit ever. But, yeah, it's I've seen some people say that, like, an adaptation of this novel can't really sustain anything more than a short film anyway. And I kind of get that with the material, like, especially with the formal conceit. It is a bit trying when it's like, yeah, you're not going to see a close-up in this movie. You are not going to see a camera that is staged in a traditional manner. Everything is going to be things mounted into the set, you know, uh, with all natural lighting and shit like that. And it has a very uh, disaffected quality because of that. And frankly, 
I don't I don't really see like <laughs> like Oscar type viewers like even registering it. That's the funniest part. It's like, oh, it looked very strange, but a very powerful movie. And <laughs> it's like it's weirdly like a surveillance movie, and I don't really understand what we're supposed to make of that. That's what puzzles me. It's like I. I I enjoy it formally for that, but like when I think deeper about it, like I don't really know what we're supposed to get out of the surveillance of domesticity Holocaust movie necessarily, but I did get a lot of just like little things out of it, you know? Like I, you know what I really liked is that it made me think about the 1517 to Paris and like when, when the kids are running around and shit, yeah. it made me think of the kids doing the BB gun fights and like being indoctrinated with like Christian American militant, uh, like total brainwashing from a young age and how that translates from you know uh, america in the 21st century to nazi germany obviously it's a big fucking leap uh certain liberal or conservative listeners of the podcast will write in surely for that one uh and i know you're out there uh but (laughs) uh but i i just think that like there's so many interesting threads to go down with this movie and it is more like an installation piece than a movie and the fact that that is gonna win an oscar probably like not for best picture but like the fact that it is an oscar movie yeah is like pretty wild that it is full-on like experimental installation mode like it is not rewarding as a movie like whatsoever Mm -hmm. and the fact that people really like it because of like whatever thematic stuff they're getting out of it is to me really impressive I, i i like that idea but then it makes me think about what I wrote about on Letterboxd regarding the ending. But it, it makes me think about the whole movie. Norman Finkelstein, the Holocaust industry. What are like? What does it mean to make a giant A24 movie about the Holocaust when the Holocaust is, you know, at this point, and it's the worst tragedy we've seen, you know, in, yeah. in whatever memory you want to put it under. But, like now being used by Israel who's committing genocide as like a cudgel, like as like a, well, we're never going to let that happen to us again. So we are going to be doing genocide to you. Yeah. Uh, And I know doing genocide is not the right uh, way to phrase that being doing genocide. (laughs) Uh, But regardless, it, it immediately brings this critical point of just like, well then like, what is the point of, pure memory well like i was thinking about like brian de palma's redacted where it kind of begs you to think about like is it okay to just bear witness to horrible things like no all all you have now is bad memories you know uh and how important are memories to you i don't know to some people they're worth building museums and i get that i I, i'm not against holocaust museums at all of course uh and there's a very pointed shot toward the end about holocaust museums and literally the economy of them uh and it's very thought-provoking but i don't know like the the movie's not taking any side on it and i i just think that like I'm not saying the movie would be better for taking a side on it. I, yeah. I just think that it's interesting that a movie is bringing all that up. Unfortunately, Jonathan Glazer is not helping his case with the way he dodges questions. Yeah, Israel. I, f- I feel like that's like, I mean, does that uh, just, I feel like I saw on your letterbox review, someone ask you a question 
about that, like whether or not that impacts like your opinion of a movie. Do you feel like that type of, because I feel like sometimes like outside things like that, yeah. in theory, like shouldn't like no, impact I, I decision making. I, I but seriously like, don't, no, I, it's, to me it's the most important thing about the film is that aspect of it and not whether or not the film's good. To me, yeah. like I walked out of there, I, I put a three star rating on it and I wrote a paragraph about the Holocaust industry and I, it could have been a two star. It could have been a four star. Yeah. Like to me, that's just like I, I almost put no stars and, yeah. or whether or not it's a heart or whatever. Who fucking cares? Exactly. Like, it, it, if it's actually going to like bring out discussions like that. Who fucking cares about star ratings, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, like, I, I that's why I wanted to, like, talk about the aesthetic qualities of the movie before we got into that part. But that part is kind of the most important part. It's the only thing I'm going to be thinking about much other than a few of the uh, very intense pieces of imagery uh, with, like, that ultraviolet stuff, which is just insane. The the UV, whatever, mm-hmm. like, black and white stuff with uh, the apple picking is just, like, or the apple placing, rather, uh, is just so sick. Like... I don't know. He his music video tendencies work for better and worse for the movie. Uh, I think he's overly committed to the bit, as it were, uh, because all his music videos are like gimmicks in some sort. They're all aesthetic feasts mm-hmm. and feats, I guess. Um, but they all have some sort of aesthetic gimmick to them, you know. And uh, I, I feel like he almost loses himself in making a potent piece of uh, critical art by sticking to that a little too tightly but you know hey who knows maybe i'll go back and watch sexy beast and be like oh this guy's a genius i remember liking uh under the skin and i mean but that also i feel like sticks to Mm -hmm. i mean there are some like aesthetic gimmicks in it that it like is sort of jumping around between Mm -hmm. i'd have to check that one out honestly i have never seen it i watched part of it when it came out like when it first came out on cable or whatever and i I think it was literally like the end of the the channel flipping era and i flipped it on and i was like what am i doing this is like the middle of a movie <laughs> what is this yeah i saw like some blurb when he was making under the skin that like he like i forget the scene because it's i think i saw it when it was released and i kind of forget a lot of it but it like something with like laser tricking like these van drivers and like scarlet yeah no there's say it then yeah the, it's um, there are scenes in the movie where it's uh, Scarlett Johansson's character uh, is an alien posing as a woman, and she rides around uh, with some men. I think she like I feel like in order for this to work and like be not staged, mm-hmm. I think she she's probably picking up these men, and it's just sort of this alien feminist kind of thing where it's just uh, she is not really giving like anything to these men, but they're like having conversations with her because she's a pretty lady yeah. and just sort of mm-hmm. projecting that onto there. And I mean, that's not the whole of the movie, but there is, I feel like a good portion of it devoted to that kind of gimmick. And yeah. And <laughs> I guess apparently that he, he, uh, he didn't tell these guys until ap- like they're non actors that, he, you know, these people didn't know that they were being recorded in like, you know, of course, he asked him afterwards, but it just made me think, damn, Jonathan Glazer, you might be able to make a really good prank show. You know what I mean? With all these like hidden camera <laughs> antics, you know, and like his dedication to that kind of like distance shooting, because it's not it's not all too dissimilar to like how they make something like a uh, bad trip that Eric Andre. Uh, yeah. Uh, Tiffany Haddish, Jeff Tremaine collaboration where they're kind of have to 
you know, shoot, shoot at long distances to, you know, not break the immersion. And, you know, obviously he's using it to a quite different end, but, uh, you know, after making such a, such a downer movie, like zone of zone of interest, what, you know, maybe you could uh, lighten things up, you know, with a, a nice, uh, prank movie, you know, just, a, just a night. It seems like, you, or like, you know, maybe you could produce it and let your AD handle that one. Cause you got the technology. Yeah. He's sulking too much with his Radiohead videos. He's got to be embracing his Jamiroquai videos. I I mean, hey, that car, you know, he did the Karma Police video. That's a classic. I mean, I don't really care about music videos all that much. I don't like if I listen to Karma Police, I'm not like, oh, man, I could see that video now. Like, I've never had that thought about a music video literally ever, probably. Um, unless it's a song that I've never listened to outside of the context of seeing it on TV. Um, but yeah, that's that. Uh, I don't know. Karma police. Good song. You ever? Yeah. <laughs> Has that ever happened to it's you? Hitler hairdo. True. Uh, Hitler hairdo is making me feel <laughs> ill. Well, is that a little prediction there for uh, the future of Jonathan Glazer's work? <laughs> oh, one other thing in Jonathan in uh, zone of interest in Jonathan Glazer's uh, fantastic. No, <laughs> in, in zone of interest that I thought was funny was uh, this. That's the thing is I don't know like. How, I guess this is supposed to be a very serious scene, but then again, the source material is written by a guy who has a lot of dark humor in his novels. The scene where they're just like playing in the river and then like (laughs) the bones and ash start flowing through the river from the concentration camp and he like gets his family out of the river and stuff is like, it's played like horrifyingly, right? But it's just like, it's the scene from the reboot of Vacation uh, with Ed Helms that they showed in the previews where they're like (laughs) bathing in sewage (laughs) (laughs) and then they realize they're in sewage and they're like, oh, we gotta get out of (laughs) here. It is hard for me to believe that anything in the movies done with like a sense of humor i feel like it's just i don't but maybe yeah. not, maybe so I'm, I, I read that's why i felt the insane in the theater yeah that's why i felt insane in the theater laughing at that because <laughs> there's also like a point towards the end where like the nazi lead character like keeps talking about like like uh, I, I was thinking about like how to bomb everyone in this room or whatever like it's yeah. like that's like for me to take that, like I don't know, I, like it, that's kind of funny in a way. Like it's kind of hard for me to take that. Yeah, seriously. I, I mean, I think the point of it is just like, yeah, this man's become such a killing machine that that's all he can think about when he's yeah. like, you know, at, at this honor uh, of a ball, and like he's just like, yeah, all I can think about from this deck is just like watch, like because uh, it, it's a contemplative scene, yeah. right? He's at this ball and he's at the overlook in the balcony, and he's zoning out, and you're thinking, oh, maybe he's starting to reckon with what he did. Oh, yeah. and then it's just like, no, I was just like chilling out, thinking of how I could murder everyone in this room. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, dude, that's a bit much. Invader Zim Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, other Nazis being like, dude, chill, chill out, man. But you don't need to bring yeah. your work home with you, man. Come on. <laughs> it would be better if this movie was Jonathan Glazer adapting it like within the confines <laughs> of a Radiohead music video, and it's very like late '90s hot topic kind of. Like. <laughs> I'm thinking of like uh, the main character. Being in like a like a shield like or you know maybe a more generic like cop show and like his other yeah. officer friend you know kind of joking with him hey man this stuff's dark don't take it home with you oh wait you know yeah <laughs> NYPD red <laughs> it's right next door you can't can't escape it <laughs> well it's not NYPD but yeah NYPD blue 
how would you NYPD translate that to swastika? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it would just be yeah, it would be K L Auschwitz Red. Like, oh, that's a great name for a procedural show. But that's the thing. Like in America, we have procedurals that are just like, oh, FBI, mm-hmm. you know, CSI yeah. Miami, whatever, blah blah blah. So in Nazi Germany, the propaganda SS. shows were just like, yeah, it was like, uh, yeah, SS Berlin <laughs> or like KL Auschwitz, you know? It's crazy how it's like, oh, tune in for a new episode <laughs> of KL Auschwitz where the commandant's up to no good, you know? I mean, isn't that what that one series was, Hogan's Heroes? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. It is crazy how they've given up on TV titles. Like, there's just, there's, there's like 20 shows out that are just the names of departments. It's like FBI. Yeah. FBI New Orleans. Like, Fire Department Chicago. Like, it's just literally just, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> I hate to say, honestly, it was like that back yeah, then, true. too, though. Like, 70s TV, yeah. the good ones stuck out and mostly the, they were just the names of the characters columbo Matt that's still Locke, a little Dragnet. bit better though well not that's Dragnet, still a little but, bit better. well i mean <laughs> hey what's up like the, jack drag the show that's like the real show in once upon a time in hollywood is yeah. just fbi true, true. yeah yeah and uh because they also had a show called emergency and it was just like firefighters awesome. and shit like, that's awesome they, they would always show that one on the old-timey tv show channel <laughs> yeah um yeah so the the lazy tv na- i think the the cities is definitely one that like is insane like how they'll just do a spin-off of every branch of law enforcement for every city yeah. that they could think of it's it, it's you know maybe the first ones they get an excuse it's like oh it's the first fbi show we get to take the fbi yeah. title but it's like it's like fbi tuscaloosa it's like what the fuck like come on I was I was watching NYPD Blue again recently, which is a very fun show, and Dennis Franz is fucking unbelievable in that show. Uh, but it's just so funny to think about David Caruso quitting it after season one because he's like, I want to be a movie star, you know? Like, I want to just be a movie. <laughs> and then, like, his movie career fails miserably, and his most notable role is CSI Miami. Like, he was the face Caruso. of cop shows after you know, yeah. uh, NYPD Blue. After Franz got all the awards for it, he was sweeping up the garbage doing the Baba O'Reilly needle drop uh, epic face. <laughs> Honestly, when I was 13, like, that was the most epic face shit in the world to me. Like, I thought that was, like, that was one of the first memes that I thought was, like, the GOAT. Like, when I was, like, 13, it was, like, a YouTube compilation of all the oh, yeah moments from CSI Miami. <laughs> it's probably still up there. <laughs> I do enjoy uh, Session 9. Starring David Caruso to give uh, credit mm, to his career, mm. and he's good in uh, King of New York, obviously. Oh, of course. Twenty uh, twenty twenty one Lakers featuring Alex Caruso. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, David Caruso is just is other than King of New York, just made bad decisions. Yeah. Probably like I think he's a good actor. It just like that was just bad decisions. Uh, Shelley Long did that for Cheers too, but she was on Cheers for like fucking five years, and then she was like, "All right, I'm done being a sitcom actor." But I was thinking about that, and I was like, huh, there should be like a rom-com or something where it's like Shelley Long and David Caruso, and it's called We're Too Good for TV. <laughs> that the, the executives made to punish them due to their uh, yeah. career decisions. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, well, you can always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the Patreon to hear uh, the first part and the third part of our Takeshi Kitano miniseries. I hope you enjoyed this one. And uh, yeah, Patreon's five bucks a month. We're doing some heat on it right now between the miniseries and some other stuff we got 
cooking. Uh, anything else you guys got to say before we get out of here? Uh, no, you know, thanks, thanks for listening. You know, I feel like I don't say that, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, yeah. guys. 